Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. For those of you whom I haven't met, my name is Megan McDonald, and it's really lovely to be with you this evening. Before we jump into the Word and just a couple of thoughts that I would like to bring to us this evening, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this evening. We thank you that we get to be in your presence in worship together. But also, Lord, I thank you for your Word. I thank you that it is living and it is active and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Father, would you bless our time together this evening? We gather in your name and for your sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Whether it's politically, socially, culturally, or environmentally, in today's world, change seems like the only permanence, and uncertainty is the only certainty. Culturally, changes to views on gender, sexuality, marriage, and family have been subtle but seismic. Whether it's legislation on constitutional freedoms, debates about religious liberties, or the popularity of new atheists like Richard Dawkins, we're in a new era. Socially, the internet and social media are undeniable forces. With over half of the global population using social platforms, it can't be overstated how much they've changed our lives. For many, the internet and social media have become the foundation of their knowledge diet. We've democratized media by allowing literally anyone and everyone contribute to the news and the content that we receive on a daily basis. And what is real and fake, and what is public and private, are now almost indistinguishable. Politically, we're becoming increasingly polarized with the identity politics of the left and the return to nationalism on the right, which is creating a constant friction and sense of outrage that is pushing us further into isolation and entrenching us into worlds of like-minded people. Contemporary thought, claiming to be liberating and progressive, has attempted to place human beings in God's role as creator, lawgiver and saviour. Morality has somewhat become self-interpreted with our culture sanitizing its sin into its truth. You be you has become culture's counterfeit to God's be as holy as I am holy. We're in a new era. In our postmodern culture where faith is built on experience more than theology, the emphasis is now shifting to attitudes and behaviors. You'll notice that postmoderns aren't asking questions about doctrine anymore. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Was the virgin birth real? Instead, they're asking questions like, why are Christians intolerant? Why do Christians suppress women? Why don't Christians support all types of love? We're in a new era. Even within the church, as Eugene Peterson describes, Religion and faith has been captured by a tourist mindset to be visited at our convenience. Our attention spans have been conditioned to 140 characters, captured by the immediate and the casual, and we assume that if anything can be done well, then it should be done quickly and it should be done efficiently. And learning how to navigate this complex seascape, I believe, is one of the greatest tasks that faces the body of Christ today. 
The cost of living in a post-Christian age is that things won't be as easy or as friendly as they used to be. And we will need to learn to live increasingly on the fringes of a world dedicated to constructing its own knowledge and own truth. In this series, Staying True in a Culture Storm, we've used the concept of the sea and sailing to describe the nature of our experience of navigating the world that we live in. In continuing this metaphor, this evening I want us to look at the idea of ballast. When a ship's designed, there are very definite laws that must be followed to ensure that a vessel is safe and seaworthy. Its dimensions must be perfectly aligned and balanced to provide sufficient stability when it's on the water. And this is done in part by adding weight, known as the ballast, below the waterline to act as a counterweight when the ship experiences a storm. It may seem counterproductive to add weight to something that you need to float, but ballast is the necessary weight and integral support that stabilizes a ship to maintain its course. And as it is with the sea, so it is with our lives. We must ensure we are building our lives below the waterline meaning in the unseen, in the places that people don't see, in the private areas of our lives, we are diligently building our faith, cultivating spiritual habits and disciplines that will act as the ballast in our culture storm. Sailors caught in a storm will often overboard any baggage that under normal circumstances might seem considered necessary, but in a storm, that baggage isn't gonna help them navigate successfully. And when the storms of life hit, whether it's corporately or personally, we need to be able to distinguish very clearly, quickly and definitively between baggage, the unnecessary stuff that we carry that is gonna weigh us down and distort our vision and ballast, the spiritual weight that enables us to move ahead with integrity. Otherwise, we will risk capsizing. And in seeking to lighten the load, we need to be very careful that we don't throw overboard the ballast with the baggage. So this evening, I want to take two key elements of our faith. Firstly, who God is and the church. It doesn't really get much more fundamental than that. And I want to set out this evening as clearly as I can the truth as revealed in scripture that will serve as our ballast as we navigate the culture storm with renewed vision and clarity. Just a quick side note, no doubt what I'm gonna say many of you have all heard before and I'm not professing to say that this evening I'm bringing anything profoundly new or revelatory. But what I am bringing and what I felt the Lord asking me to bring is an exhortation an encouragement to us again to see God clearly as he has revealed himself to be and it be assured again that despite what our culture might say to the contrary, his word, his works and his character can be trusted. Does that sound okay? Let's begin. Firstly, who God is. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus asks his disciples possibly one of the most important questions in the Bible. Who do you say that I am? This question came in the context of a conversation Jesus was having with his disciples when they were in Caesarea. The disciples were telling Jesus about how people he'd been meeting 
couldn't agree on who he was. Some people were saying that Jesus was Elijah. Some people were saying that he was John the Baptist and others were just saying he was a really good prophet. And hearing this, Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks them, but who do you say that I am? The structure of this question in the Greek emphasizes specifically the word you. So if we translated it more literally, it would read, and you, who do you say that I am? Jesus wanted to know specifically what their answer was. He wanted to know what they thought, not what other people thought, not what the rumors were. He wanted to know who his disciples said that he was. Why? Because theology is important. What we believe about God and his character impacts every aspect of our lives. Everyone has a theology, whether they know it or not, and you'd be hard pressed to find someone who doesn't have an opinion on God. For many people, they are happy for God to exist so long as he fits within their own moral standard. So he's well-mannered, he's kind, he's polite, he's not violent, he's vegan, he's altogether lovely. Culture more broadly, however, generally objects to the idea of God out of an absolute rejection of absolute truth. That truth itself is unknowable and subjective. And the concept of an omnipotent, transcendent God to whom we all must submit is archaic at best and it's intolerant at worst. Since all beliefs and perspectives are equally valid and nobody has the right to say that their view is more superior to someone else's. Interestingly enough, where our culture tends to be ignorant or apathetic about who God is, the enemy is not. The enemy knows exactly what is biblically true about who God is. And during Jesus's earthly ministry, demons were often quicker to acknowledge who God was before many humans did. For example, in Mark's gospel, when Jesus cast out demons from a man and sent them into a herd of pigs, the demons called out and acknowledged him as son of the most high. James 2 verse 19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. We can spend our lives debating theology, but in the end, each one of us has to answer the integral question of life. Who do you say that I am? We need to decide whether we think Jesus was just a good teacher whether he was a kind man who cared for the outcast, someone who inspired the least, or whether we believe what the Bible says he is, the Messiah, the Son of God sent from heaven to bring about God's kingdom here on earth. Because without a conviction of who God is, it is so difficult to develop a clear focus and strength of faith to build the necessary ballast that will sustain us when life gets hard. The way that we understand God is the way that we will represent him. If Lord, we will serve. If creator, we'll humble ourselves. If holy, we'll bow down. And if Messiah, we'll worship. But it's not easy because we live in a culture that in its fallenness corrupts our minds and it inflates our egos to think that we are the arbiters of truth. So that when God speaks, we determine its integrity by how we feel and who we believe God to be. 
And if we don't trust his character, then we certainly aren't going to trust his words. What he says about how we are to live, the choices we're to make, when he asks us to forgive, calls us to repent or pick up our cross, it's all up for debate. You know when Eve took the fruit of the tree and ate it? She chose to believe the word of the serpent over the word that God had spoken. And her misplaced faith revealed an incorrect belief that she held about God. Her thoughts about the tree didn't determine whether it was good or bad. God had already said that that tree was off limits. But the enemy sowed a seed of doubt when he came to her and he said, surely you won't die. And in that moment, she believed that God and not the serpent was the liar. And we are all too familiar with the consequences of her decision. What she believed about God informed who and how she behaved. There are so many reasons why we have distorted and wrong views of who God is. For some of us, our view of God is shaped by our past. Broken families and relationships have made it really difficult for us to relate to God on any fatherly or sentimental level. For others, it's the sin that we come back to time and time again that has convinced us that God has mad at us for not doing better. And for others, it's the unanswered prayer that whispers to us that God is not strong enough to come through. And not least, we have an enemy of ourselves who is hell-bent on making sure that we don't ever discover the fullness of who God is, because if we did, we as the people of God would pose a serious and dangerous threat to his unholy plans. So how do we get a right understanding of who God is? Well, Romans 12 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Our minds become renewed into a right way of thinking when we become people of his word. Eugene Peterson writes, The Bible, all of it, is livable, it is the text for living our lives. It reveals a God-created, God-ordered, God-blessed world in which we find ourselves at home and whole. Every page, every paragraph, sentence, word, Old or New Testament has in it something that God wants us to hear. Folks, God has given us his word so that we might know him. Jesus is perfect theology, and we see that in the scriptures because he perfectly illustrates the mind of the Father. The truth of God's word is able to unveil our hearts, anchor our feet, and strengthen our sea legs so that we can agree that his word reveals a holy God who will always and in every way speak what is true, command what is right, and promise and provide us with what is good. God is too holy to deceive and too holy to lead you anywhere but truth. He's incapable of holding a grudge. He's incapable of failing us. He's incapable of promising us something that he has no intention to deliver. He is utterly and completely reliable in every way. 
What he says is true and what he promises will happen. What he wants for us is best, why? Because his word says that he is holy. Deuteronomy 32 verse four says this, the rock and his work are perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is he. Tonight, I want to encourage us to ask God again to bring the scriptures alive. Jesus doesn't want us to have just an intellectual understanding of the words, but empowered by the Holy Spirit, we would have a passion for his words, not just words on a page, but a revelation of a living, speaking, moving, relevant, creating, moving God. Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. I'll admit, sometimes the nature of who God is is absolutely beyond our ability to comprehend. But it is never beyond our ability to experience. And it's through reading his word, abiding and spending time in the scriptures that we experience who he truly is. And our perception of truth will increase as we experience truth more deeply, as we allow his word to become the ballast by which we orient our lives, we become familiar with him. Not overly familiar where we take advantage of him, but we just become more aware of him in our everyday lives. And when we do that, anything that is not of him, anything that is not in line with what the scriptures say, become more obvious and it makes it easier for us to call it out for the baggage that it is and throw it overboard. Secondly, the church. Whether you like it or not, the moment you became a Christian, the moment you asked Jesus into your life, you became a member of the church. We become parts of a body, a family, a people, and a house. Ephesians 2 verse 19 to 22 in the message says, that's plain enough, isn't it? You're no longer wandering exiles. The kingdom of faith is now your home country. You're no longer strangers or outsiders. You belong here with as much right to the name Christian as anyone. God is building a home and he's using us all, irrespective of how we got here and what he is building. He used the apostles and the prophets of the foundation. Now he's using you, fitting you in brick by brick, stone by stone, with Christ as the cornerstone that holds all the parts together. We see it taking shape day after day, a holy temple built by God. All of us built into it, a temple in which God is quite at home. Doesn't that sound amazing? And Jesus made an incredible claim about his church, which is also an incredibly powerful prophecy for us to take hold of. In Matthew 16, verse 18, he says, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Again, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase translation says, This is the rock on which I will put together my church, a church that is so expensive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out, amen? The mission of God has always been to reunite creation to himself and human beings to one another. He is using you and I as his bride to flood the earth with the promise and the hope of the cross. 
The church is a people where wanderers find a home. The lost find hope. The lonely find community and where our Lord fulfills his purpose to redeem creation. And don't we owe people the message of the gospel? We live in a culture where truth can be so confused and diluted. But as the church, we hold the truth, capital T, that cannot be swayed or diluted by any new ideas or philosophies that will inevitably come and go. The church is not any less relevant now than it, is, than it was when the spirit fell on those believers in the upper room. And we have a responsibility to take hold of the gospel for our generation so that they will be saved from a lost and broken humanity. And I want to look at two ways very quickly that we as the church are called to navigate the culture storm. Found in Matthew's gospel, and we know them well, they are salt and light. Firstly, salt. Matthew 5 verse 13 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Here, Jesus is saying that to be salt, you need to have the qualities that enhance the flavor of something. Unlike pepper, which changes the flavor of a meal, salt is supposed to enhance the flavor of the meal it's added to. So if you think about the church this way, as being a people called to enhance the flavor of our culture, of where we are, our communities, our families, where we go to work, where we go to school. Bill Johnson comments that when you have a nice meal, you don't unscrew the salt shaker and pour it onto the side of the plate. It's no use there. And this is what this is. This is the salt shaker when we are all gathered together in one place together. But for salt to be effective, it has to go from the salt shaker and be sprinkled throughout the meal. And it's the same with us. To take hold of the go of the gospel, we have to go. We are a church of business people, teachers, nurses, parents, politicians, students, sprinkled throughout our whole society to bring the reality of Christ the reality of the kingdom of God to that place of influence to enhance the flavor of what our city is doing. And that's such a bigger picture than just going to church on a Sunday, right? It's so much bigger than just wanting our neighbors saved so that they will join. Instead, it becomes about the way that we just do life. That it so speaks identity and purpose into our communities. The God-marked edginess that keeps us in that place of influence, encouraging people to taste and to savor the kingdom flavor that we bring. Secondly, light. Jesus then went on to say in verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus said a city on a hill cannot be hidden. 
So, when is a city on a hill most observable? I'll answer. In darkness. A city on a hill is most observable in darkness. As the church, we stand out most powerfully and prophetically when we are the opposite of our surroundings. We are called to radiate the glory of our Father. Where the world sows lies, we speak truth. Where culture promotes personality, we build culture, character. And where the world says more, we say more than enough. Because it's in darkness that people will see the church as Jesus intended it, as a place of safety, of refuge, of hope, and of healing. And people will see a community. Our culture has bowed to the idol of autonomy, a pervasive mindset that says that we don't need anything or anyone else to fulfill our needs, and we are the sole arbiters of our faith, of our identity, and most certainly our destiny. But there is so much of life that only happens in community, where we learn to do family well, business well, where we learn to serve and to love others and people. People will then see this community of the redeemed and it will attract those who are walking through the valley of the shadow of death and are in desperate need of the light. They will see a place of health, of wholeness and life that only our saviour can bring. You know, in the first instance, many people might not come to church because of their need for God. Many people aren't aware or care about their need for God. But perhaps they'll first see your children and they'll like how their children are when they hang out with your children. They might see your business and wonder how on earth you managed to walk with such integrity and resilience through a global pandemic. They might see your marriage and wonder how you have remained so faithful and strong after so many years. They're coming because the light of the kingdom expressed through your life has attracted them to this place. Don't ever underestimate what God is doing in you, what he is doing and using for us. A brief side point I want to show us that I think is really relevant for our role as the church and culture is found in Jude 1 verse 9. And it says this, But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Why is that relevant? I can hear you asking. Uh, For context, Moses has died. And the devil and Michael the archangel started to have an argument about his body. And what's really interesting here is that Michael is an archangel. So he's, he's big. He's pretty serious in heaven. Like he's top-ish. Like he's a big deal. He has a lot of authority. But even he, who has huge authority, does not take it upon himself to rebuke the devil in his own authority. Rather... He says, the Lord rebuke you. Why does this matter? Because even though that we have been saved by grace 
and redeemed of our sins and walk in the light of our salvation, we in our own strength are not the final authority of this world. So often, we want to rebuke sin or call people out, and I undermark that by saying sometimes it is done with good intentions. We want to call people out for when they make bad choices, but we need to remember that in our own strength and of our own authority, we have no authority. Only the Lord has authority. So what Jude is trying to emphasize and we must take hold of as the body of Christ is that even if Michael the archangel who exists in the presence of God doesn't take it upon himself to rebuke the devil, then neither should we in our own authority. Sometimes it's easier to shout at people than it is to serve them. But Jesus is saying the greatest in the kingdom is servant of all. And as the church, we must ask ourselves, how is my knowledge of the scriptures? How is my love for my God making me a better servant to the people around me? Not preacher, not moral authority, but servant to our families, to our friends, to our communities, and to our brothers and sisters. Can I ask the band to please join me? As I said at the beginning of this message, I felt the Lord asking me to share an exhortation and an encouragement to us to develop a right understanding of who God is and despite what our culture might say to the contrary, to know afresh that his word, his works, and most certainly his character can be trusted. When we look to Jesus, we become set apart from the culture storm around us and the things it delights in because it's to God alone we belong, giving him our bodies as a living sacrifice, our mouths as his ministers, and our feet to bring the good news of the gospel. And this heaven-empowered love toward God and our neighbor may set us at odds with the culture around us, but even then, we can be assured that God's peace is ours too. With courage, I believe this cultural moment doesn't need to be viewed with fear or intimidation, but with a heaven-filled hope and opportunity as we, the people of God, pursue kingdom culture, not cancel culture, revelation over rhetoric, and character before content. Welcome to the age of unbelief, folks. The church can absolutely thrive here. Grounded in his word, empowered by his spirit and called in his name. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.